The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Collective Whisper Podcast. I am Simon Kay, your host, and this evening we have a very special guest for you, Mr. Mike Sheridan. So we'll talk about Mike in a moment. But as always, I'd like to remind you, please subscribe, follow and listen to the show and please share with your friends. We would love for them to experience the wonderful content and the guests we have and you can help them do that. So thank you very much for that. Mike Sheridan is a broadcaster, producer and journalist with 16 years experience in the Irish media industry. He has edited some of the biggest publications in the country, Joe.ie and Entertainment.ie, as well as most recently overseeing the relaunch of Reach Ireland outlet, Buzz.ie as editor. Mike has featured in many national newspapers and magazines, including the cover of Fit magazine and another cover for Tatler Man most recently being interviewed about the success of The Delve in the Sunday World newspaper. In a freelance capacity, Mike has written extensively for Brown Thomas Men's Magazine, The Irish Independent, The Irish Times and Unilad on everything from politics to culture and style. As a broadcaster, Mike has hosted live radio shows on numerous stations presented live television on the national broadcaster RT. In 2011, Mike produced and featured in the ultramarathon documentary Challenge 126, raising almost 50000 for charity. The following year, he produced and starred in the MMA doc Barbaric Gentleman, which also featured Conor McGregor and Dana White. One of the most in-demand facilitators working today, Mike has interviewed the likes of Al Gore, Leonardo DiCaprio, Sean Spicer, Reese Witherspoon, Amanda Knox, Jordan Peterson, Jake Tapper, Keanu Reeves, and countless others from the world of sports, current affairs, and entertainment. His interviews have been viewed well over 50 million times online. In April of 2020, Mike gambled on himself using his savings to purchase a show he created, The Delve, from his former employers, launching its first independent season that June, The show has gone from strength to strength, adding to a fast-growing subscriber base. The Delve currently has around 12 million views and counting across all platforms. Audio episodes of the show have also gone out in full on two national radio stations, iRadio and Classic Hits 4FM, as well as charting as a top 10 podcast. As an event host, Mike has interviewed Netflix stars and sold-out nationwide tours in the likes of iconic Dublin venue Vicar Street and has worked with brands such as Budweiser, Carlsberg, Arnott's, Jameson, Nivea Men, Paramount Pictures, bestseller, and more. Welcome to the show, Mike Sheridan. Thanks for having me, Simon. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, busy at the moment, which is good. But uh, I'm in, my, as you can see, I'm in my cub. We uh, we said it was a studio at the start. It's not quite a studio, although I have a microphone. It's a cub cave rather than a man cave. <laughs> yeah, it, it feels like an oversized cupboard, to be honest with you. But uh, it's it's my home. It's been my home for the last two years. Yeah. Well, I've been interviewing people, so I don't mind too much. Well, if it gets the work done, you know, I always say with my studio here, sometimes if you look outside the camera angle, the room's a mess. <laughs> yeah, just a frame. That's it. Just a frame. Yeah. Thank God if, if you had a huge camera or a fisheye lens, you wouldn't do any interviews. It's a, I, shoot, I use two cameras to do the interviews. Um, so there's always a bit of a stress beforehand because it's such a small space, a tiny room. So there's very, very few options angle-wise and lighting-wise. So I just, yeah, just get on with it. Like. I was kind of contemplating doing the two camera thing. But then every time I looked at the camera angle the other way of me, I was like, I don't like it. And I just stuck with this. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing worse than having to edit yourself and look at yourself like, oh, 
the self-loathing by the end of it now. So. I'm bad enough looking, but the side angle's worse. So. <laughs> we all have our good sides. <laughs> yeah, I just found, haven't found mine yet, you know. <laughs> you know, we'll go back in a minute and we'll kind of look at your career and things you've done. But at the moment, are you kind of busy on stuff or what are you working on at the moment? So, yeah, I've... Ran, I've ran a good few publications and I just left the tour publication around a publication called Buzz.ie in around that for a year. I was editor of that for a year in June. I left. So I've been freelancing since then and doing the show, doing the Delft. So a lot, there's a lot of, as I'm sure you know yourself, there's a lot of chasing and a lot of, you know, uh, pre-production and never mind the stress of the production and the interview. And now I'm editing the show myself as well. So there's a lot to it. And we actually start production on a documentary tomorrow when we it's one that we kind of had an idea that we wanted to do pre-COVID and COVID has kind of exacerbated the whole thing. So it's more prevalent than ever to do the documentary. So we start filming with that tomorrow and hopefully get a bit of a start on it and have something tangible that we can we can show around and get a bit of funding for. Um so the plan is we're shooting we're shooting in lovely Tallah tomorrow in South Dublin and then hopefully head to the States um around mid end of november and do some filming over there so to have something that we can show possible people who possibly give us money to make the rest of it that's the plan it's kind of like make a little bit get a bit of cash and see can you continue isn't it yeah it's you, you need you need to have something to show people it's it's grand having an idea of what you want to do and trying to articulate it and explain it to possible funders or producers or whoever it is and nothing can do that like the visual form so if you have something you can literally show people this is what i'm trying to do then you know, finger, fingers crossed. I'm sitting here in a year, and and we have a wrap, and it's gone around the festivals and stuff like that's the kind of aspiration. Okay, that's great. Let's go back a little. Yeah. So, as a teenager and growing up in and around Dublin, did you kind of have aspirations to work in media, or was there something that triggered an event? An event that triggered you said, "I want to do this." Uh, I grew up in Coolock on the on the north side of Dublin, um, in a place called Mofu, and. Uh, I hasten to use the phrase rougher than a jockey's bollocks, but it's rougher than a jockey's bollocks. I apologize for swearing, but it's, it's it. All right. It's, this is the show for us. Yeah, it's descriptive. <laughs> you, you get it, you know? Yeah. Um, so it was a rough old area. I still have some of my closest friends are still, I, I met there. I'm still friends with today. And I always was very creative. I always really liked writing. And I just didn't think there was a way for me to get into media. I wasn't that ac- academic. I was fine in... Primary school, you know, you can just kind of keep your mouth shut and nod and smile and the teachers will love you in primary school. Secondary school, I struggled a bit and just had no interest and ended up going to film school. I went to class to do like I went to film school. I wanted to make, like I wanted to make stuff. I always wanted to make stuff. Ended up getting into media through entertainment.ie, really. Um, I started entering cinema listings, like which was glorified intense data entry. So we would have three days a week where Every cinema time for every film and every cinema in the country would have to be entered into this database by hand. A fountain of information for cinema goers. Oh, for the Times. And then like, so like, then it would go to the Irish Times. It would go, I think it was Airtex at the time. It would go, it was like 2007. And it would go to Airtel. And so there was a lot of pressure. If you got one time wrong, people were turning up for a half an hour later for a film that already started. Showing up for Driving Miss Daisy and watching Naked Gun. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> there was plenty of that and plenty of complaints. So it was a fairly intense... For what it was, it was fairly intense. Um, and I was just given an opportunity. I was hired by a guy called Julian Douglas, who was the co-founder, one of the founders of entertainment.ie. And like, he's the OG for Irish publishing, Irish online publishing. Like, and he really took a chance on me um, because I was quite raw. And 
he, I thought it was great. He saw something in me, like, you know, brought me in, let me work my way up. And I just managed to get a bit of writing done. I like obviously at the time that he did a lot of movie stuff. So I started doing movie reviews and then I started doing interviews. So I started interviewing like the first on camera interview I ever did with Adam Sandler. And that was like a couple of, when it was a couple of years into entertainment.ie, entertainment.ie then started to take off and was the go-to place for a lot of these big movie stars and big movie junkets. And the movie reviews came, became quite popular, but I never really wanted to be a film critic. I, I, do, I, do, I don't, I don't enjoy critiquing other people's stuff. And I've had a couple of instances where I've been on panels with people after hammering their films, you know, and it's, it's not nice. And I try and explain this to friends of mine who are like filmmakers now. And I've had a couple of situations where I've been speaking to people after reviews have come out of stuff that they've made and they're trying to understand it, you know? And I'm like, look, you have to realize that it, a lot of the time it's not about you or it's not about the production. It's about what mood the film critics in that day. And their background and, you know, examples, Dublin Old School is a film I really loved. It's a film I really related to. And I think Emmett and um, Ian are like ridiculously talented. I love those two lads. And like Emmett is all as a writer and performer, like alone is phenomenal. And the reviews that came out, some reviews that came out of that were like baffling to me because they just couldn't relate to the film in the same way that I could. I mean, that's subjective. That's what it's funny you mentioned that I was reading there recently, actually just this week about Martin McDonough and he was talking about, you know, his new movie, the the um, something of Inishir. I can't think of the title. Banshee's Inishir. Yeah, 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 the Banshee of Inishir. But he was saying that a lot of theatre companies were rejecting them. And even when his work was successful, he was still getting rejected. And he said sometimes then it's kind of like a personal thing. So I think sometimes with critics, you know, it's nearly like they don't realize they're being personal about something. And, they, you know, the, the average Joe can look at himself, but that was a great movie. And the critics are like, yeah, but it's not my kind of movie. And that's where it's wrong, really, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I think I was always one of those as well that went against the grain a bit. I, I would, if, I, if I enjoyed a movie, I got a good review. I didn't try and break it down, at least when I got a bit more into it and a bit more experience with it. And, but the point being, it's easier to tee off on something and it's more entertaining to tee off on something. So if you don't like something to hate it on paper or in like whatever it is online, whatever, whatever way you're putting, putting your review out there, it's just, it's easier to slate it and it's more fun to slate it. I'm sure I try and explain that to people who have, who have kind of, who I know who have made stuff and like, look, sometimes it's not even just you. If you connect with the audience, you find people that like that and enjoy it. That's kind of the main thing. But I, did, I really didn't, I really didn't enjoy doing this. It was a great in. I didn't enjoy doing this. And then I went off from entertainment.e to joe.e and I was editor joe.e. For about a year and a half, um, it was a big step up for me. Uh, I was I ran all the movie stuff in entertainment.e and it was a very comfortable, family-like situation. And I didn't realize how much like that it was and how lucky I was until I went to run another publication. And it was just a bit more um, bit more intense, especially as an editor. So it was blown up in a big way while I was there too. Can I stop you and ask you a second before we go off entertainment.e? So on a lot of those junkets, can you kind of explain to the, you know, the people who don't understand how that whole process works, because we all see, you know, the Keanu Reeves and these people come on and promoting movies and everything. But what we don't see is that they're doing lots of interviews that day. And, you know, it's like a media tour. So how tell us the process of how, you know, entertainment.ie and these magazines get connected to these movie stars and do the junkets. Can you explain how the whole thing works for us? Yeah, sure. So the vast majority of them take place in London. Um, occasionally you would fly over to the US for them, but that's very rare. 
Um, I'm sure when the Celtic Tiger was flown, it was way more plentiful. But London's London's the best you can kind of hope for now. And you would get flown. Obviously, it's been Zoom for the past couple of years. But you, they would essentially, the movie shooters would rent out a floor on, in Claridge's or in the Soho Hotel. And they would have publicists everywhere, depending on who was doing the junkets. If it was the filmmakers, if it was the stars. And you would walk, essentially, they'd sit in a room for a day, sometimes days on end. They'd have to take toilet breaks and stuff, I think. But uh, And journalists would come in and interview them. Some of them would be on camera. They'd have certain rooms that are, they'd have, they'd, they basically have everything set up. So you go into the room, lights are all set up, cameras are all set up, movie stars sitting there, whoever it is, and you sit down, do your whatever, five, ten minutes, leave. Next person comes in. Five ten minutes leave, so it's quite repetitive. They give you the video file after or something, or they mail it to you. Yeah, yeah. When I first started, it was beta tapes, which is how old I am. And now it's now they'll okay. send you the files. They send you the files. So it's a, it's a surreal experience. Like it's a very small space, and you can imagine for the movie stars or or whoever, you know, when they're sitting there all day. Chances are, if they have 15 interviewers, they get asked very similar questions and it can be a little mundane and, you know, monotonous. So I'm sure every so often there's a gem of an interviewer who kind of asks them something that's in- interesting because it gets tiring after all them hours, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And you, you try and be aware of that, but also publicists are very careful. Of what You know, publicist's job is to, protect, is to protect whoever the movie star is. So they don't want them put in a position where they're going to say something that's going to make bad headlines for them, I suppose. It's their job. So it's a tricky balance. And I've, I mean, I've done so many of them at this point and I've genuinely forgotten some of the people I've interviewed. And even if they're super famous, because just it wasn't that memorable an experience. You know, they're just trying to get through the interview. You're like trying to get something from them. You've gotten a red eye over at whatever, the 20 to 7 flight to Heathrow from Dublin, I remember was, was when we used to get on. And then you're back the same day. So it's not very glamorous. Um, it's certainly an insight and you're certainly lucky to get to speak to these people. And some of them have been amazing to get to speak to somebody you grew up watching or like John Favreau. Like people always ask me, one of my favorite interviews is John Favreau, who's a famous director now, but he wrote a movie, he wrote a movie called Swingers. Great movie. And Swingers is my favorite movie. It has been since I saw it in the mid nineties and when I was very young. Vince Vaughn and John Favreau, really good. And I got to I got to chat to him. The interview went like three times over the limit it was supposed to go, so the publicists were freaking out. You know that old expression, never meet your idols. I'm sure you've met people like in the movie industry over the years, and maybe they've let you down in what you thought they'd be, or their personality was blander than they are on screen, for example. Yeah, I mean, for the, the vast majority of people, I think are just trying to get through it. And I'd be cautious. I would try and be, like, some people are just dickheads. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, of course, but of course. I would try and be cautious about judging them on the basis of that day. So yeah. generally speaking now, if you've got friends who work with, this, like, they're part of the team or the studio or wherever, or they work with them to some degree in makeup, something like that, that's when you find out what type of person they are. Yeah, they see the real side. Yeah, they see the real side because it's not, if you know, if they are putting it on. They're not putting it on when the cameras aren't on or when when the press isn't there. So, like, I'd Sonam Assessian on who's Conan O'Brien's assistant very recently, and she was saying the exact same thing, you know, and how nice a guy he is and how authentic he is. And I was like, it's very telling when your assistant has been working with you for such a long time and you're propping them up, and which is which is what he did with her. But yeah, look, some people just aren't nice, um, and some people are just over it, which is fair enough. Like we said, they're long days. Is there also a, a competitive edge 
amongst the journalists and the, the interviewers like outside who are waiting? Because, you know, when you get there, are you given an allotted time or it's first come, first served? How does that work? Oh, yeah. Like that, that's all very heavily handled. So the, the studio publicist in the studio, the, the talents publicist, that would all be organized beforehand. The outlet would have to be approved. You would have to be approved. So you'd be, there'd be JB Chen. Like the last time I interviewed Keanu Reeves, they wanted, I'd already interviewed him before, um, but we were flying over specifically for that. We brought our own crew with us. So they were, his publicist was obviously wanted to see more interviews, wanted to get more of an idea um, of what it was like. It didn't matter that I'd interviewed him before. They wanted to be like, okay. And that's what they paid for. That's the jobs. So it's all, everything is like a well-oiled machine, but then you might have somebody, interviews invariably go over. Generally, you find the sounder somebody is, the more likely it is, it is that the interview will go over time because they're chatting to people. They're trying to have normal conversations with people when the cameras are off and it doesn't work like that. You just need to be in, in and out. It's lovely when they're, when they're you know, they, they genuinely just want to have a chat with you and just, and just want to get to know you. Um, so it's a surreal, I'm surprised they're still happening. I'm surprised they're still going on the way they're going on. I think Zoom has probably made it a bit cheaper to do them maybe. I don't know. Um, but there's nothing in them really. Um, I did a couple in Buzz and I hadn't done them in a long time. Like the last short, short interview I did in Paris was Tom Hardy and Riz Ahmed. And that's because we had a mutual friend. And um, I knew I'd get, I knew I'd, I knew it'd be a good interview because of that. But I generally try to avoid and did a couple of remote ones, as I said, for Buzz. And they're just people in a room looking at a screen like we are now, but it, with no time to really get in, to really get under the, under the bonnet, you know? The other thing as well is, you know, like with a lot of interviews, you can see they're set up that it's like a, a, it's done over the Internet and so on. But with some of those junkets now, do they have the camera angles and everything set up that it looks like the same the, the interviewer and the interviewee are in the same room, but they're actually on a Zoom call? Did they do that? I would say if you're in a studio, um, they might, so because it's going to be like you're going to you're going to have one angle at Zoom. And you're going to have one angle that's a professional camera, unless you're shooting yourself. But if you're in a studio, you've obviously got access to high quality cameras there and you can cut it together that way. Your oil line doesn't matter as much depending where you're looking, where you're not looking. So it, it's not such a situation like, say, Keanu Reeves is in a studio and the people are interviewing him, but they are in a kind of a studio in Dublin or something else and they're making it look like it's the same studio. That thing doesn't happen. No, if, you, if people are... If people are appear to be sitting across each other they generally, generally are. are yeah they generally are yeah i mean at least pre-covid and i see that they've, they've come back a bit now in that the london junkets are back like travel is obviously like you know thank god it's, it's happening more now and um but yeah it's been 2019 was the last time i was over there um summer 2019 for Keanu reeves um so they're for me now they're, they're relatively rare because i don't have the patience <laughs> to do the rigmarole for um publicists and I also I don't, don't work for an outlet anymore to delve is its own thing now so you know I, I I'm just I'm done to a certain extent I whore myself for very specific people now <laughs> somebody I'm a huge fan of I'll try and Joe then Joe.ie is very different to you know entertainment.ie because I always looked at Joe.ie as kind of being like Unilad and there are similar kind of veins and you know that's a lot of uh, video content memes and you know, it's um, a lot of content for people to view, whereas entertainment.ie was more, as you said, movie reviews, interviews, junkets, that kind of stuff. So when you went to Joe, was it a completely kind of left of field or was it similar to what you'd been doing? It wasn't dissimilar to what I've been doing. I think 
essentially, and I think especially now and at the time, you have multiple publications doing variations of the same stories, especially content aggregators, which is like everybody will have reporters, they'll have original content, they'll have all that. But the the bulk of the traffic is going to come from a newswire or content aggregation, unless you unless you break 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 a story. With Joe, we covered sports, we covered movies, we covered popular culture, but we covered news as well, and um, it was a tricky balance. And it had a very very engaged social media audience when I got there, and the site evolved like Unilad. I do bits and bobs for Unilad now and Lad Boy now, and those sites are completely different than they were at that time ten years ago. It's, they're way more, I don't know, diverse isn't the right word. They're just way more aware of, of and, you know, I made mistakes earlier on in Joe as well. And I was a very young, well, young, I was 30 when I was editing it, but I hadn't been an editor before. And I wouldn't do things now the way I did then, if that makes sense. When you were editing then, is it as such you're like general editing or you're editing, you're like a producer over all the content or over video or over print or over, you know. Oh, you're like, is that, depending on the publication, I can only speak for the ones I've ran. Um, Entertainment Buzz and Joe, like you're over all the editorial. Over all the editorial. And anything that goes up on the site, you're responsible for. Okay. Typos, lawsuits. <laughs> Journalist says something about somebody shouldn't have. You're the one that has to listen. You're the one that has to get screamed down the phone. Somebody screaming down the phone to you. Like, you know. So, yeah, you're responsible for everything. You said they're the content aggregators. So how does that work in the sense that when we watch the content on Facebook and it's from Joe or Unilad, do they, is everything cleared or, you know, because obviously if they're taking content from other sites and then there's copyrights and everything, they must have to do a lot of kind of checking and everything, or is it just after the fact? Well, they could have a news wire. So if it's, if it's something hard news wise, so if it's something like crime stuff, um, Anything like that, you should be using a newswire, newswire like AP or routers, routers or something like that. Right. When I say content aggregation, I mean like, you know, it's something relatively like relatively inane stuff compared to anything kind of current affairs. Like it's stuff that's out there. It's more viral stuff. Yeah, and you try and reference, but well, you know, journalism one on one is link back backlink to original source, which is what everybody should be doing, and which is what I obviously did, um, from from very early on. So. But it's harder now in this kind of, because everything's so fast now, isn't it? Yeah. And there is a bit of a race. I found that. Um, and it's something that, you know, it's, I've been doing it for too long. So I'm probably a bit jaded now at this point, but it is a bit of a race for content. And then what happens is for people to get their content out first, especially if it's a breaking news story, they're the stories that spike traffic and everybody covers them. So Jordan COVID, for example, everything was COVID numbers. Um, when I, like, I'm not going to jump onto buzz too quickly, but I've from very early on, I, was like, I don't want to see COVID numbers on the site. I don't want to see daily COVID numbers on the site. Now, it would have been now, 10 years ago, coming into Joe.e. And, and if, you know, if, if I if that was now and I was starting Joe.e now and I was that age and it was my first editor gig, I'd be like, get the COVID numbers on the site. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. If it increases our numbers, put up the numbers. Yeah, we need traffic. We need traffic. We need traffic. So, um, yeah, it's. It's that's that kind of content aggregation thing, and that like the, the numbers are released by the HSC or wherever it is. So you're not necessarily taking content from other places. The content's just out there. But if there is an original source, you back reference and back link to the source. I can imagine now, obviously, as time goes on, the market is so much more saturated, and there's more companies like Joe, like Unilad, or you know, and Advice and other these companies. So is it getting harder to? kind of make money in this business or to keep this kind of business alive because there's lots of companies around the world doing it 
I think as well, I think a lot of companies surge hired during COVID. They needed more reporters. They needed more content coverage. And now, like, obviously, it's there's not as much of a demand on that type of news. So I think you'll probably see, if you haven't already seen, you'll start seeing people have been made redundant a bit more now, unfortunately. But it's, it's, it goes in cycles. And it's very hard to stand out, I think, without already having a huge social media audience in place that's going to spike your traffic, that's going to lead your traffic. So unless you're doing partnerships with brands, you're doing big partnerships with brands, which is obviously, it's a small industry here in Ireland, Unilad and you know the likes of those in the UK are their machines. That's a, that's a completely different thing. But unless you're doing those partnerships here, you're relying on programmatic ads, which is clicks. So you need clicks. And that's, you know, it's, it can't, I'm not, like, you know, some sites do very, very well, but it can be a bit of a race to the bottom sometimes when it's just about the clicks. As you see from publications who clickbait and dangle headlines out there for, for people to click on a lot, you know. But I think people are a bit more wise to it now. I think the public are generally speaking, a bit more refined about what they click on and about what they look at. I suppose, you know, in this world of podcasting as well, you see it now because like someone was asking me a week or two ago, they said, oh, but there's so many people podcasting now and everything. Unfortunately, when podcasting, like, you know, it's been around for years, but in the last two or three years, it's kind of peaking a lot. Well, I don't want to say peaking because that says it can't go higher, but it probably will. But what I feel is that all the radio stations and all the TV stations just took their content and turned it into podcasts. So in a way, that's kind of like they have that budget and they have that platform to do it. So part of me kind of goes, that's a little unfair. But I mean, there's no real rules with it because you take a radio show and then before it was on the RT player or the radio, you know, but now all of a sudden it's a podcast. And so everything, it's like I, I, I saw somebody said the other day, I'm not sure if my 15-minute message from my friend on the uh, audio message is a podcast now. <laughs> Anything can be a podcast if it's audio, can't it? That's very true. And yeah, like a lot of stuff, I, I mean, I think radio stations now have copped that a bit more. And like, I think Bauer now, used to be Communicore, they've got Go Loud, so they've really... Like Ireland took a few years to cop onto it. Like Ireland was very, very slow to embrace podcasting. I know that firsthand because we were doing podcasts and entertainment in 2011. I'd, I'd like Sean William Scott, the still friend of American Point on podcast then. Um, and it just took a while to catch on here. And I was constantly been told it was niche. And up, in, up until 2017, 2016, that it was niche. It wasn't going to catch on here. The person that told me that's now working for a podcasting company, would you believe? Wow. But you see, it's... um. It's a funny thing, yeah, because like in any industry, you know, there's people that say, oh, you have to go this way and you have to do that. Like I, I get that all the time in my podcast where people say, oh, but why don't you focus on one particular niche or one area? And I'm like, because I enjoy doing this. I enjoy interviewing a musician or then a, uh, an actor or a sports star. And for me, that's the joy I'll get out of it. Whether it'll ever be a huge success because of that, I don't know. But I don't. If I want to do that niche thing, I'd probably just do another podcast. You know what I mean? But this, yeah, this is a, for me, it's more about building something long term because it can be done. I mean, who knows how successful anything can be? But much like your own show with the Delve, you interview different people from politics, from different worlds. And I think if someone tunes in, I, if I have 60 or 70 episodes and someone tunes in and listens to 10 of them, that's enough for me. I don't, I don't, I could say, let's niche it and get them to listen to all 70. But then 
you're not doing what you really want to do, you know? Yeah, like it should be enjoying it, I think, is first and foremost, because it's a, it's a difficult world, I think, to make a living from. And uh, again, especially, I think, especially on this side of the world, I think in the US, it's probably a bit more saturated, even more so than there is here. Um, but you have to enjoy doing it. And for my show, it's an extension of me. They're all people I'm interested in speaking to. Occasionally, I'll get pitched somebody. Um, excuse me. Occasionally, I'll get, I'll get pitched somebody and I'll have them on if I think people will respond to it. But since I've taken over the show, like as in since I bought the show back during COVID when everything went remote, I haven't had anybody on who I didn't at least have a, you know, like the last three guests I've had on, I had books out that I had to read. You know, so uh, you really have to be engaged to read a book before you have another guest on on November 7th whose who's book I'm going to start this week that I have to get through before then. You have to be interested in the people. You have to be interested in people like that. Some conversations, like you might find that the music stuff comes to you a bit more easy because it's just, you have it in the locker. You don't need to do a huge amount of research. Other conversations, you'll have to do more research. Sometimes, you know, someone said to me, I was listening to an interview with you, some rock star or somebody. And then I turned and there was like an interview with Andrew McGinley. About, and they were like, how how do you deal with that one? And I said, well, then you just have to research everything well and you have to make sure you don't say the wrong thing. And you know what you're kind of going to say because it's not as loose then. You know, you have to be very sensitive. So you learn these things as you go along. How I mean, a lot of it is naturally an ability to talk and interview, but you have to learn what not to say too. Yeah, you have to learn to adapt to the person that you're speaking to. And personally for me, I, I, I generally try very much not to make it about myself. I try to I try to facilitate conversations. And I, I'm aware that I think for the most part, people aren't there to see me. They're there to listen to or watch the guests that I'm speaking to and they want to learn about them. So I consider of it course. my job to get them comfortable enough to open up and share even if it's somebody I don't agree with or somebody I didn't think I'd like, and I've had some of those people on the show, if they're culturally significant and interesting people, I'll, I'll interview them. Yeah, of course. And that's the point, isn't it? Because you you could get everyone you like, but then sometimes you see someone on the outskirts and you go, oh, hold on, this person comes into my radar and maybe they're controversial or maybe their opinions aren't things. But you're like, but there'll be a really interesting guest to interview. And, you know, that's the great thing about podcasts is you can bring people on who's can put their story out there and there's not as much censorship and so on. I had a guest on, I think it was like on my on the second one, yeah, last year. And um, they were having a terrible time getting their content onto publications and onto RT and this kind of stuff, their documentary because of the content in it. And once I kind of started talking to them, I was like, well, then you you definitely have to come on because even if it's a small voice that puts out your stuff there, people need to hear about it because unfortunately, you know, we live in this uh, politically correct world and people, when it we know very well in Ireland, there's so much, you know, with the June babies, there's so much with all these different things being hidden and the public media sometimes don't want to touch it because it's dangerous and controversial. So I think podcasts have a role in that too, to portray those voices. Absolutely. And look, like Irish libel law isn't great for journalists. They need to fix that. So people have to be very, very careful about what they say. You'll see that with publications, big publications. You see that with RT a lot. Like they have, people have to be so careful about what they say because of how the libel laws are, are, are structured in Ireland. So, but absolutely, I mean, I think people having a, a platform is hugely important. I think that you can say the market saturated. There's a lot of podcasts and there are a lot of podcasts, 
but generally speaking if you're enjoying it keep doing it and hopefully you get to grow a bit hopefully you get to if you have further aspirations of moving upwards in that world or moving to a different medium but in the same creative space a podcast is the gateway to do that then all the better yeah of course and and i think that's the great thing about it is because nowadays there are so many great podcasts with great hosts and maybe they just fell into it in a way and they're very naturally good at it or bad. I mean, you can be both. But the point is that before you would have to get on radio stations and do auditions and have all this training. And now they get a chance to kind of just nurture themselves through the process, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, it's learned by doing, really. Um, yeah. It's how I learn. Like, I've just learned to edit. Um, like, I, I edit my own show now, a very talented editor. Um, and now she taught me how to do it myself. So. I, and it took so long to get it. And it was the same. I learned to swim. You know, I didn't know how to swim. I just had to get in there and do it. You just have to get in and do it. learn by doing it. It's the same with this. You know, you're, you, you might be great at it right away, but that's subjective. And you can do it. You can do it because I was the same. I was lucky in a sense with the audio because I'd done music production for years and stuff. So that was easy. But then I was like, okay, but now I have to look at the, the video. And it's something I'd never done. And I was like, okay. And you just go on a learning curve and make mistakes and improve. But you, this is the great thing. Now you can do so much more, can't you? Absolutely. Um, and like you can use you can use the mics on the or use the cameras on the laptops on the iPads, whatever. Yeah. I've interviewed people. I interviewed Anthony Scaramucci. He had his phone. You know, so like that was a, you know, it was, it was how we had the time. You had, you gave me a half an hour. He had the time. Sat down with his phone and it was fine. You know, no, no, like it's it's. If the world has changed more. Whatever works. Yeah. And you know, the great thing is, if that guest is interesting, people don't really care. I mean, as long as they can hear and see it, they know the situation and they know that at that moment, probably that's all you had or all he had. Yeah, well, it's it's it, the content should speak for itself. If it's good content, I don't think you're, I think you're right. I don't think people will care. No, no. With the Delve itself, you were saying that it was obviously belonging to your former employers. And so... When you said, okay, I want to take this baby and, you know, nurture it myself and bring it out. Was that something like it was a bit of a gamble then? And were, at first, did they kind of say, oh, no, this is ours? I mean, did you have to convince them? Yeah, I did. Um, so I started when I was with Entertainment.ie, but the company that bought Entertainment.ie, I'd I I taken a job there for about a year and a half as head of production. So just producing, uh, helping people get camera ready. And I started to delve when I was there. And when I left, I said I wanted to take it with me. I handed my notice. Very good relationship with the boss there at the time. But he has a boss. Everybody does. And they wanted a silly amount of money for it because it was making money. It was making money on YouTube at the time. We had some really big guests. And uh, I was like, I'm not paying that. I can't afford it. I was freelance. So Don't have it. So then a year later, COVID hit. And the financial situation changed so much, I believe. You were still outside the door. I'm still here. I was able to swoop in. But also, I mean, there was nothing they could really do with it. Like, it was, it was me. It was my show. You know, I mean, they could have tried maybe. And uh, and I'm sure people wouldn't have cared. But it wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense to have somebody else come in there and do it. So, I, well, yeah. And then I just realized I could take it remote. I'd seen, like, somebody like Bill Maher or whoever do his show remote. And like we were saying earlier, it didn't really matter. It was about the content. Now, look, I'd always prefer doing stuff in person. I just don't think there's anything better than that connection than getting people. Yeah, being in a room. You're looking, you're looking at somebody and them looking at you and like, it's just a different thing. And, uh, but like Zoom was really, really good for me. Um, and the show, it kept me busy during like a very quiet period. Like 
a lot of people like COVID was shite. <laughs> you know, there wasn't much going on. So um, I would chase guests. I managed to get a sponsor for the first season, back to the second season, and the show kind of paid for itself. So, um, and I wanted to do something different in terms of the production of it. I didn't want to just do a, what everybody else is doing. I'm always trying to do something a little bit different. It makes things yeah. hard for myself. So I did that too. Well, why not? Because I suppose that's sometimes when you have that challenge, that's when you see the fruition, you know, and you see the fruits of your labor. You kind of go, okay, if I do it this way. And like we were saying earlier, sometimes you have to do what you want and then it's unique in its own way, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we started out with a mic, like a small mic and one one camera I got cheaply on, I think it was ads, adversary or something. And excuse me, now we've two cameras, you know, a bit more of a professional setup and I can do it all, you know. Um, it's not ideal, not ideal to be hitting record on two cameras and making sure there's in focus. And... For me, the remote thing worked really well. And um, like, as you said, there's lots of good podcasts that do it. So if you do it right and set it up well and the schedule and the time differences, it can work really well, can't it? Absolutely. And you can connect with people on your side of the world, which is, as you said, is something you wouldn't have been able to do before. I wouldn't have been able to do the Delve without it being remote. I wouldn't have been able to afford it um, to be able to hire a crew. And as I would have done in entertainment.e when we brought people into the studio, like I just wouldn't have had the capacity to do that. We didn't have a, we had a full staff in entertainment.e with production teams. And I don't have that. It's me or generally speaking, it might be my girlfriend hitting record in the camera and then legging her from the room, you know. She's met a lot of, she's met a lot of former like people that worked in the White House and like comedians and stuff. She'll come around after and say hello, you know, it's gas. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the good thing is when they're in their setting, like whether it's their home, they're more relaxed as well. Because, you know, if you bring people into a studio, they they have that certain kind of barrier up because they're thinking, OK, this is more professional. But if they're sitting on their couch or they're just very relaxed, having a cup of coffee, they can open up a lot more. Yeah, there's no stress involved with it either. And you're not getting stuck in traffic. You didn't miss a flight. You didn't. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's just. There's still an element of you need the people, you need them to feel comfortable enough to speak to you. And uh, like that's not an easy thing to do, depending on who you're, who you're speaking. I'm sure you realize yourself. And you just need to, I think if people aren't doing a million interviews a day um, and are open a bit of crack, then generally speaking, you'll be able to engage them. It'll be an interesting conversation. If you thought you were interesting enough to speak to in the first place, you know, they will be. Yeah, it's like I remember when I started and I'd done a few months and I, there was like a, a Spanish neighbor here and he said, oh, and we were talking and he said, you do podcasts? And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, who do you talk to? I said, well, the very first interview I did, it was like my friend who's been living in America for years. And then I just kind of built on it, some musicians and stuff and then kept adding people. And he said like, oh, yeah. And some of them are famous. I said, yeah, well, you know, minor celebrities, then more famous. And he goes, and why do they want to talk to you? <laughs> and I said, well, that's a good question, I said. But I said, I'm working my way up. So, you know, the, the, the this industry is very superficial in a sense that sometimes people want to see who you've interviewed before they let you interview them, you know. So if if you've just interviewed your mother and her neighbor and so on, they're like, what's this got to do with me? But if they're in the same industry, sometimes it's easier. It's like a, it's like a, 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 a bit of base, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, if you've got, a, if you're getting a million downloads of podcasts, you could be interviewing the cat. They do it because it's publicity, you know? Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. I think it's more like for me, it's an indication. I have, I have a site that people always say, how did you get those interviews? I always found it very insulting because I've been doing this for 16 years. It's like, that's how. But uh, I've got a site where people can go and look and see the interviews I've done. So it's handy for me. 
like especially when speaking to somebody like somebody from CNN or something like that, it's they know they know they're not going to get. They know I'm not a weirdo. Well, I'm not that weird. Yeah, yeah. As of far course, as they know, you know, that's just going to going to be saying mad things. There's an air of professionalism there, so it's just letting people know. Look, I'm not a freak. These other people have done it too. Which yeah, you have a look do? here. Have a look yeah, here. Exactly. And when you, you know, saying that actually, because people say, oh, and how do people get guests? And nowadays there's so many companies that are trying to match people with guests. And I get sent these all the time. And you look through the list and I'm going, okay, but it's a, a lot of people are trying to self-promote them. And you're kind of going, oh, I don't know. Are they interesting or, you know? And even you said there earlier about this, the people self-pitching, you know, I get that sometimes where someone would say, oh, I saw you have a podcast. Uh, I, you know, I have this and I'm doing this and I'd love to come on the show. And I think to myself, yeah, but that's not kind of how it works because it's when I'm watching something or I see something that sparks my interest and I go, oh, that would be a good guest. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It has to light that fire in me as the host that I want that person on. But when someone self-pitches you, you're kind of like, okay, you have to make me interested because I don't know. It's do you know what I mean? It's it's that feeling is not the same. It's it's the chase for you, Simon, is it? It's the chase, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. Because yeah. like I, you know, if I'm watching the documentary and I see someone really cool on it, it's kind of like okay, they'd they'd be a great guest to have because you maybe connect with their story or you think people would connect. But sometimes you know, with LinkedIn, everybody's a guru and everybody's a coach. <laughs> yeah true there's, there's plenty of those on linkedin all right yeah all over all over linkedin uh yeah like look i think if somebody has a profile people more people are aware of them there's probably more demand to speak to them which is just kind of by and large that's just how it works but it's those niche stories or those stories that people don't necessarily know Um, getting those type of people to open up and they wouldn't have had the platform otherwise i think that's fascinating like if somebody's pitching themselves they've got something to promote that's what they'll want to talk about you're narrowing the conversation there right away. Let's look at your documentaries there for a moment. So, you know, I, I watched the ultramarathon one the other night and I watched the barbaric gentleman one. So let's talk about the ultramarathon one first, because, you know, that was something you had been doing. And you mentioned earlier there about, you know, teaching yourself to swim and teaching yourself to do this. You like to kind of push yourself against the grain a little bit to see how far you can go don't you yeah i mean certainly with the ultramarathon one i'd done an ultramarathon the year before i'd done a 100 kilometer ultramarathon in northern in just inside the arctic circle in sweden in northern sweden uh, with a really really good pal of mine and it was an incredible experience i mean i hated it jordan don't get me wrong it pissed rain for 11 and a half hours i've done it but it was amazing and and then the following year i wanted to do a 100 miler and Got to know Brian Mark, who's a DJ here with 98 FM and is now is like one of my best pals. And um, we it was more the trainer runs than anything else that we would support each other for because they were like six in the morning, running marathons before work and then again after work or whatever. So the documentary aspect to it then came into it. I went to college with a guy called Eamon Cleary and he owns a company, started a company called TechnoWolf for another guy called Brian Dean. And they've since gone on and made like, they just made a movie with Josh Hartnett. Like they're like they're absolutely flying now. And so I put the documentary together, brought the lads in, and then myself and Brian concentrated on the run. But the running stuff, I mean, I I've run a good few marathons in my life, and I've done half Iron Man and all of that stuff. It was, it was something you didn't really need to think about a huge amount, and it was the grind. You just embrace the grind. You get up, you get the miles in, you get the miles in the legs. And I mean, I know a lot more about nutrition and hydration now than I did then. I was an idiot. 
now I really have to you know cramp up now if I, if I don't have my you know four liters of water a day with some electrolytes because I'm 40 now but uh it was just it was an it was an incredible experience it was painful as I'm sure you could see with the documentary but it was it raised a lot of money for charity too raised nearly 50,000 euros I think for charity as well so um and you know when you go through something like that as I did with Brian you're kind of bonded there for a while Brian's always trying to get me to do stupid stuff now still <laughs> It's funny though because there's I actually just saw on LinkedIn the other day there was like a Royal Marine and he's doing 52 marathons in 52 days, you know. So it's kind of that like the ultra marathon, but daily, obviously. So, and I, I think, do you remember when Eddie Izzard was doing all the ultra ultra marathon? Yeah, it's something I think people are pushing themselves to do more, and not just you know. I know in Galway we have Richard Donovan, the ultra marathon runner. For you, was that something? Like, had you always been running? And doing marathons, like since you were young, or how did you kind of get into it? No, I mean, I was I loved sports when I was a kid. Like I loved like uh, um, I played football. Then puberty hit, and that was you know started to go out the window. Other things took focus. Um, so it was always a regret that I never concentrated properly on 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 sports. I would have, I think, I would have had the genetics for some of them in retrospect. But uh, I didn't start really running seriously till like my mid mid late twenties. Uh, I got a quick enough half marathon time, then a okay marathon time and then just realized i was better at the grind so just switching off for like the the limerick to dublin run which ended up in about 235 miles brian ran a few miles more than me because i had to stop and clean hospital for a while and i had to catch up with him and he ran about three or four miles more than me um was just it's you really have to switch off or just think about the end goal and just visualize the end goal and just visualize it being over <laughs> that's that's how i got through it at no point did i ever enjoy it and and you can't really go counting every mile, can you? No, and I mean also during that during that run as well, um, there was a bit of confusion about how far we had to go. And when you've ran 115 miles, that will mess with you. So if somebody's saying eight miles and somebody else is saying 20 miles, that's going to mess with you because you're you're in a bad way physically and, and mentally. You know. You know when you're mentally drained and physically drained and trying to do calculations, what's 115 from 126? You're like, I can't work it out. <laughs> Oh, like it's it's the thoughts of it. It's like you you break it down into little segments in your head, and like right, I've just a marathon to go. I remember when we got the first two marathons down, not a bother on either of us. You know, I remember you can see in the documentary or grand. Then the third one started to get into the middle of the night and they hit the Midlands. We didn't think that true and went uphill, and uh, that that was kind of that was where the pain really kicked in. I know you had the coach Ash or Ash was his name, yeah, and um, so. Did he kind of prepare yeah. you more mentally or was it more like tips and tricks with chafing and all that kind of stuff? How how was he the biggest help? Ash is like, I'm godfather to Ash's son Kildown now. That's like, he's one of my best pals now as well. And Ash was the guy I did the run with in Sweden. So Ash wasn't supposed to be the coach. I asked him to come along. <laughs> he, right. he, owned a, he owned a store in, in Temple Bar called Run Logic, And he's incredible at what he does. He just constantly has people coming back to him. And that's who I met him. I went into one of his shops one day and he was giving me advice. I was doing an Ironman. I was doing a 70.3 at the time. And he's a beast. And he's so much experience in that space. And he's just like a Zen master, you know? And he actually would fall out of bed, hung over and run a three-hour marathon sometimes. Just, he's just Australian. He's just from Adelaide. He had to run three miles to get his post in the morning, I think. So, you know, dodging snakes and tarantulas and shit on the way. So, um, yeah, he was just, he was just, he ran so much of that run with myself and Brian as well, like just keeping us sane. And he had no intention of, of doing any of it. And I'd say he ran about 60, 70 miles. Um, you know, and he, he did a, he just did the Chicago Marathon there recently. He hadn't been 
training a huge amount, I think, because of work and because of COVID. And, you know, we still able to blast out a marathon with, with very, very little training. So he's just a, Ash is like, he's a guru. And I think anybody that knows him, he's got, he's really well known, I think, in that community in Ireland. And for very good reason. He just knows his stuff inside out and is able to um, really refine little things without being officially a coach or anything like that. They're just tips that just make make it more efficient and make it easier to make you make the chafing hurt less. You know, I know my mother, like she's in her 70s now, but she and my dad, they both used to do marathons. My mother did like seven marathons and about 12 half marathons. But when she did her last marathon, you know, it was taking much longer because she was older. And she said, you know, she knew about five kilometers or five miles from the end. That's it. No more marathons. This is the last one. <laughs> you know, so I think people hit a wall sometimes. Rather than getting better, they realize I'm getting too old for this. I think with the endurance stuff, generally speaking, um, if people are like conditioned, if their bodies are well conditioned and their diets and stuff are good, some of the best in the world are in the mid 40s in, in terms of the endurance stuff. So it just depends. Like it really is a grind. It's a trainer more than anything else, to be honest. It takes up so much time. I don't want to say the next challenge, but the major challenge then obviously with the documentary Barbaric Gentleman moving into the world of MMA. And I've studied martial arts for years and I, you know, used to train a few different styles. And so when I watched that documentary, I was kind of intrigued how you just like going from zero. I know your brother trained a little, but going from zero to just into that world was a very brave thing to do. But you know, I know there was people, Anton Savage and them saying a very stupid thing to do, but it was a, it was a, you know, it was a good, good thing. I think it, it taught you a lot about your own mental strength too, didn't it? Yeah. Like I think what own on Roddy, who's a coach in SPG Charlestown and just was, was, he was the real star of the documentary. I think even to this day, it was nine years ago. And he would say, look, you've been to dark places during the ultras, you know, like a switch off where we mixed martial arts. There was so much to it. There was so much to learn. Um, as well as cutting weight, as well as getting to training twice a day, as well as running Joe Daddy at the time as well. And it was particularly stressful. And um, my ex-girlfriend at the time, uh, my girlfriend at the time produced the documentary. So she had to listen to me, <laughs> giving out, cutting weight, training, getting the shit kicked down me every day. And film it. <laughs> and then she was then, they, she was then able to go and, you know, get us an interview with Dana White, you know, like, so she did a incredible job producing the documentary and then dealing with my shit as well. So yeah, like I enjoyed it. I was always interested in it. And um, I'm, I'm only annoyed now. It took me so long to learn how to like properly fight. Still train. I haven't trained since COVID. Um, but uh, I trained for about eight years straight. And I just did rounds upon rounds upon rounds with uh, some of the best guys in the gym all the time. I wasn't great at the more technical things. And I was like, wasn't trying to be at a certain point. It was, it was, there was no point. I'm not going to be in the UFC. It wasn't going to be in the UFC at my age. But I just liked, I liked fighting. I liked sparring. And I liked the lads I trained with as well. They're just good guys. There's nothing aggressive about it at all, which might sound ridiculous, but there's not. No, no, of course. And uh, I just, from the fitness from the fitness side of things, the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life is like a, res- a wrestling class, a grappling wrestling class. You, like if you watch some of the fittest people on earth, there's a bunch of shows on YouTube where as part of Spartan games or something like that, they'll grapple with each other. And they're breathing through their arses after 20 seconds. There's nothing like the fittest people in the world are wrestlers. I think what it was, you know, I remember I started out doing karate and stuff for, for years. And I had I got my black belt. And then I said, oh, I'm going to try a few different styles, you know. And um, 
at the time then I kind of started um I was actually living up in Donegal and I started training with a guy Josie Murray up there and he used to bring the Gracies over Carly Gracie so I, you know I started kind of getting into that world of Brazilian jiu-jitsu but like that no matter what training you've done once you're on the ground and you're grappling you realize oh shit where's my energy gone yeah. you burn it so fast so you have to learn to calm down and just like re- rethink the situation because I could see there as well, even in your documentary, when he was saying to you, um, you know, you were on about, oh, I run 15, 16 miles a day. And he was going, no, no, you have to focus on sprints because it's that kind of uh, explosive energy you need. And you need the, the stamina is good, but you need to be able to weather the storm, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And it's stop and start. You know, it's you know, five minute rounds or three minute rounds for Andy at the time. And uh, you've got your break in the middle. So it's, you know, and there's adrenaline dumps as well after exchanges. and the anticipation of being hit takes a lot out of you too. Like that's a big adrenaline dump. Like you're kind of half, you're half waiting to get a crack in the head or a crack in the face or whatever. So it's, it's exhausting. Even when your body's not moving, you're exerting energy and burning calories. After that fight, you know, and the documentary had wrapped, did you think, okay, I'd like to fight again? Or you thought, no, that's it for me now as regards fighting? No, I mean, there was, uh, there was always the intention to have more fights. I had a couple of, I did a, I did a competition um, in the gym and I won both fights and they were at, like, I fought two like, heavier guys than me um, but it was always the intention to do it again life just got in the way um, and I was training like I was going to fight but fight camps are very very tough like I have friends who are UFC fighters and who have fought in the UFC and it's it, what they do is on a level that I can't comprehend a professional athlete so I wasn't far from a professional athlete so it's just fight camps take a lot out of you and if you're if you're running a like I was running publications and that was in the, that was intense enough, so it ended up in a time where I get out for a couple of jujitsu classes and then I try and get some of the lads to come in and spar me the weekends and just you just like as the lads would say you'd have a knock you know you'd throw the gum shield in and slap the head off each other for a while and then like me and the lads still give, give each other abuse to this you know message each other talking shit on Instagram and stuff but um yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's a it's a remarkable thing and I think it's a very um I don't think people really understand the real world that a lot of these guys are in and these women are in. Um, and I think it's a lot of it's very akin or people think it's like Conor McGregor is the sport and he was huge in building it to where it became, uh, to where it went a few years ago. Like, I think that really did peak then in Ireland anyway, because he was the biggest, athlete, most well-known athlete in the world and he was Irish. He was from Crumlin. So um, a lot of those guys are like just nice, decent guys. Generally, they're a bit nerdy. The really, really high-level jiu-jitsu guys are nerdy. They're, they just nerd out on jiu-jitsu. And they're probably, more, more often than not, I found, they're not really into other sports. Maybe rugby, but very, very few are, like, mad into football, mad into rugby, and then do a bit of jiu-jitsu. Maybe, I mean, I'm sure there is that now. It's more popular. But back then, um, it's almost like a contrarian uh, activity, you know? It's like people that gravitate towards it tended to be a bit geeky and a bit nerd. Well, I think what happens as well, you know, people get into any of those kind of worlds and they obsess a little bit and, you know, they want to learn everything and the techniques and they're always talking about it and other people are like, oh, stop talking about that all the time or whatever. So it's kind of a, a situation though where it changes who they are as well because I was watching recently, I know you've interviewed Jordan uh, Peterson, but I was watching a, a, a clip where he was talking to someone about that, situation of not never knowing violence and more or less what he was saying was if if we know violence you know it can be used badly but he said if you don't know violence you're weak 
and then you're never ready for anything. So for me, I remember that when you're young and you start training in martial arts, you learn things that will help you, but you learn that control as well. So that's what people don't understand, that a lot of these MMA fighters are martial artists at heart, and they know they could hurt people, but they know that's not what it's about. Of course, when you see the UFC and you see it's like the wrestling, the bad boy image and in your face, that's all part of the show, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this their prize fighters make money from from uh, forces. You know, it's they have to sell the fights, and that's always been a part of like you know combat sports, uh, like to a huge degree. But like, I think it, like there's nothing wrong with getting punched in the face every once in a while. No, it teaches you some humility, and a few people probably need a few digs in the head. As my late father said, <laughs> yeah, but I'd come down for a little bit. Yeah, when you turned up with um with cameras though to like SBG Charlestown and stuff, I can imagine when that happens. You know, if, if filmmakers and documentary makers come and say, "I want to do this experiment," sometimes maybe they can be a little skeptical and they're thinking, "Yeah, you won't last," or and you have to prove them wrong, don't you? Yeah, I mean, we were one of the first to like really cut. Like Conor McGregor had one fight in the USC at that point. Um, and we actually got in touch with Owen before he had his fight in the UFC, but then it blew up. And then I think John Cavanaugh and Owen were getting people onto them all the time. You know, people wanted to travel. Like, I think John Cavanaugh in particular has had, gets mad messages from people. He, he would have showed me some of them before and, like, either trying to make something, trying to film something, or wanting to move over from whatever random country in the world and sleep on the map. They're going to be the next Conor McGregor, you know? So, yeah, uh, you do. You, I mean, you have to prove yourself, but I, I mean, I think. I, I, I didn't go into it with an ego at all. Like, I went into it, I was getting shit kicked down me every day. So, um, and you I mean a few years later, I was able to hold my own, but like, still getting the shit kicked down me. You know, these these lads are like younger and way, way more technically gifted. But it's good, though, I mean, that you can do that and you can do because it's kind of it's another path in life you found through that. And as I said, it's it's all it's a valuable skill as well. Oh, absolutely. And it's look, it's, uh, you know, I've, I don't want to be in fights with anybody touch what I really don't want to be in fights with anybody it's the last thing I want but I think what it does is and you know if I have kids someday it's what I'll be teaching them you know uh, I have them like daughters sons whatever jiu-jitsu you teach those kids yeah. jiu-jitsu because yes. not only will it get them super fit and super it's a super um like activity in terms of movement and how, and how to use your body and how to use your weight but it's very very effective and you're not digging anybody in the head and they're going to bang their head in the ground and something horrible is going to happen and you're going to end up in jail. <laughs> it's going to escalate. It's a very, very, it's, it's, it gives you, I think it gives you an inner a confidence in that, you, you know, you, you know, you're not going to go looking for trouble. There's very, very, very few aggro lads in mixed martial arts. Like, it might, no, again, no. it might sound like a contradiction, but the vast majority know they can, so they don't need to. And I, I, you find that a lot with a lot of those guys. And you know, there's a thing, I, I was, I had a martial arts coach on here from Galway. He's very coaching in there. And we were talking about, sometimes what it can be is, it's not necessarily always the people that go in. It depends on the coach too, because you can also have a coach who has a bit of an ego. And there have been gyms like this, where the coach, you know, maybe trains people the wrong way because he wants different results or he's he's aiming for fights. So he's kind of weeding out the weak ones and pushing the the ones who are really good at fighting. And sometimes you have this situation where there's not the best atmosphere in gyms. I've seen this myself. So this also can happen. But And then the guys who do come in with an ego or with that kind of yob mentality, 
they can thrive in there. But in most gyms, whether it be MMA or Taekwondo or boxing gyms, if you come in with an ego, someone's going to take it away from you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was very lucky with Owen, like with Owen Roddy, who was like not only a great coach, but just a like fundamentally decent guy, gem of a human being and a brilliant communicator. And I think that's the, from my experience with coaches and our friends who are professional athletes and football and in other aspects of fighting as well. Like from what, what they tell me, Owen has it all. Um, and he's had fighters in the UFC and fighters in Bellator since his own fighters in there as well. And you just, he did, the, the coach dictates the mood of the gym, I think for sure. And we were so lucky. Uh, Owen Roddy, like he was just, the gym is beautiful as well. And he's an SPG Charles and he changed up a few years ago. And it's just a state-of-the-art gym. And uh, like, oh, like it'd be gassed. Like I want to be, come back from a Conor McGregor camp, you know? And where you'd be cornering Connor, and then the first thing you'd be doing would be holding pads for me. And I'd be like, this isn't the same thing, you know. But he's able to step on a coach. He's able to adapt and he's able to, you know, like it's like these are coming at you a different way than a McGregor shot. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think in that world, like when you, you know, when when you see the UFC fights and you see John Kavanaugh and Owen Roddy and these people, and they're they're in the frame, so to speak. But they have to get on with what they're doing and they have to go back to, we'll call it the day job to to do it all again because you can't get lost in the limelight or that the good thing you're doing is finished with. Yeah, I mean, fighting careers are very, aren't very long, you know, and I think, you know, if, unless you're a heavyweight who hasn't taken much damage over the years and I think I'm retired fairly young and I think he was younger than, maybe younger than 30 when he retired and was an unbelievable fighter, so. Yeah, he was great. I remember him. He was a great fighter. Yeah, Rowdy on Roddy um, and like his highlight reel is vicious. Like he was incredible, and he still is. Like Owen is an absolute the sweetest guy in the world. Be a killing a second, um. But yeah, I mean, it's you know what does John Kavanaugh says when I learn, and I get that. You know, it's it's you can't put too much into one fight. Or although you talk to coaches and they're more nervous watching their their fighters fight than they were fighting themselves because there's only so much you can kind of control. You know, and a lot of people would be the most technically gifted people in the world and absolute beasts in the gym and then throw them in a cage in their underwear in front of a few thousand people. <laughs> you know, it's fight. a different story. It's a different story, you know, it's uh, which is which is kind of fair enough as well, I suppose. You know, so going back to interviewing, you know, from I'm sure with all the different people you've interviewed, whether it be, you know, through junkets or through the delve and everything, is there any kind of ones that really stand out for you that have, were very memorable and you kind of think they surprised you maybe in their interviews? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's so many. I mean, the, the junkets are it's often so fleeting, it's hard. But, like, I mean, I mean, it was also amazing to, like, interview Leonardo DiCaprio and Nicolas Cage and Jessica Biel for a very different reason than the other two, but, like, still amazing. And uh, with the delve, it's a bit longer. It's, lo you know, it's... I get to know the people a bit better. And also, you know, I was I have to get the guests myself. So there's a, there's something in that as well. The Jordan Peterson one is one that always comes up, like because it, it it's like eight million views or something like that all in. Um so that was memorable. And I mean huge Bill Burr fan, you can see the poster behind me. Um I'm and he was the first guest for the first remote episode we ever had. I managed to get him to do the show. Um so like and I knew to stay out of his way. I'd interviewed him a few times before, but like He's just, I, he's the goat for me. I think he's the best ever. Um, and then like somebody like Amanda Knox, I'm still in touch with a bit. I'm hopefully going to go to do the show again. Remarkable interview and remarkable insight. Good. I watched that interview. It was very good. Yeah, I can't wait to, to speak to her again, hopefully. I just think she's, 
you know, again, a, a remarkable person given what she's been through as well and the shit that she still puts up with now. But the ones that are easiest to me, the ones that are like are kind of more second nature to me are the political stuff, especially the US political stuff. So like I've had a former director of the CIA on, John Brennan and Secretary of Defense. Um, Sean Spicer's done the show. Uh, John Bolton's done the show. I just had a guy, uh, guy from MSNBC um, on Jonathan Lemire. Uh, he wrote a best-selling book called The Big Lie. They're very easy conversations for me to have because I'm, I consume that stuff anyway. I was going to say to you, that you know, for that, as you said, you really have to know your stuff. You have to be either be an avid follower of American politics and worldwide politics, uh, or you have to either research it well. And I think the former is the one you have to be really into it, don't you? Yeah, uh, because you're consuming the stuff without having to study it. So it's a muscle that's already there. You have it in the locker, um, so to speak. And, and look, I've, I have had to interview people with that I haven't been necessarily a big fan of or knew a huge amount beforehand, but like, Bob Saget was one. He's got the same publicist who's a friend of ours now uh, as Bill Burr and Joe Rogan. And Bob obviously passed away in, in December. And that was the most, because I knew of Bob, obviously, from Full House. Not many people didn't. Like, he's a, you know, he's world known. He was world known, man. And that was a gorgeous conversation. And I had a connection with Bob and we had a lovely conversation afterwards. He said that my girlfriend was middle of COVID, came around, we were chatting to him for about half an hour after we stopped recording. So just the kindest man. And everybody had these lovely things to say about him. Everybody had the same things to say about him. And like, that's how you knew. And he treated everybody the same. He was genuinely curious. So uh, yeah, that was a shock now. And uh, we, we were like, when COVID was over, we're going for dinner. You know, we were going to go for dinner when he came to Dublin or when I was in LA. And so it was a shame I never got to meet him in person. But that's, Saget's probably the most memorable one. And like the, the warmest person I've ever met in my entire life. Just even over Zoom, we just exuded warmth and curiosity. And like, yeah, that was one of those where I was watching people say all these amazing things about him. I just knew they were true. Yeah, I think that's it because I always think a good conversation in life with anybody, whether it be in a cafe or bar or even on a Zoom call, is people who want to hear your story, but also, you know, they're curious. They want you to ask them a question because I always say to my wife, I say, I know straight away when I meet someone like, you know, a friend of a friend, if they tell you all about themselves, but they don't really ask you anything about you, you kind of know the conversation's too one-sided. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's the beauty. It's finding out things about people, isn't it? Finding out their little intricate lives. Yeah, well, conversations should be authentic. I think people can tell when they're not. And I think that's why there's been a big gravitization towards podcasts with audiences as well, because they crave that genuine conversation it's why some podcasts intimacy yeah like i mean like joe rogan's podcast now is the biggest show in the world whether you like him or you don't it's like it's more more people consume that podcast than do any other form of media and like that that's that's just a fact so um it's it's and i think there's something in the looseness of the conversation he was very early on in what he did i he definitely deserves credit for that i disagree with him on a lot of stuff um i'm sure but uh, I think it's one of the reasons why his show has blown up the way it did. Moving forward, you know, would you like to go into more of political commentary and political type shows in your career as well? Yeah, well, I mean, the documentary we're making is a bit more, um, I wouldn't say political, but in that space. Um, the content we covered in Buzz was very much uh, like more global issues and local issues, at least when I was there. Um, they're doing like the deputy, my old deputy editor there, Dara, is the editor now, and he's doing a phenomenal job. The, content he's like really he's young and he's able i'll put it that way i'm old and it was haggard 
Um, but yeah, I want to move definitely towards that space. Um, I've, you know, I have been for the last couple of years anyway. I think in terms of Ireland, I think it's very hard for people to see it in a different light. I was the movie guy for a while and then I was the MMA guy and then I was the Joe.E guy. And so uh, for, I don't, you're not, I don't think you're going to see me on any panel shows anytime soon. Like commentary wouldn't be um, a big appeal for me. Like I get offered TV slots sometimes and unless I'm interested in what they want me to talk about, I'm not going to talk about it because there's people that could do it better than me. And I feel like I'm taking an opportunity away from them. So if I can, if I got an opportunity, absolutely. I would love to put, not necessarily commentary. I think my strength is interviewing people. And um, yeah, I didn't mean I definitely have opinions and stuff. I'm probably just not as forthright with them uh, during interview situations because it's not the place. You know, it's, it's uh, as I said earlier on, it's a facilitator job from as far as I'm concerned. And I think especially the US political space, I think it's, there's insanity going on there now. And it could get very insane in the next few weeks. That's going to lead into 2024. And I think the significance of that, just because it's America, is going to matter here and everywhere else around the world. Um, it's just going to destabilize everything. Um, if it goes, it keeps going uh, the way it's it's probably going now. So, like that's that's intrinsically interesting. You mentioned there about being a facilitator. So, do you you know do you do more of these events where you're kind of you know like MC an event for and and talking to people and getting being involved in these kind of uh, like online discussion, not online, but like on stage discussions. Yeah, I've, I've done a good few of those. Um, people have to hire me to do them, to be honest with you. Like, so uh, I did, I did the John Kavanaugh one, McConnell McGregor. I did the uh, two boys from Narcos, Steve Murphy and Javier Payne. They're going to be on the Delve soon again as well. And um, that was Vicker Street. So, and then most recently I did the tour with Rory, uh, Rory O'Connor, Rory stories and Ray Goggins. From Ultimate Hell Week, and that was blast just to get back out there after COVID. But yeah, it's I've one booked in now for February, but yeah, like it's it's just if those if those things come up, I love doing them. Um, especially if it's somebody you know I'm interested in, somebody you know I don't have to do a huge amount of research on. I always know about them, but like I love doing them. It's a great buzz to do something in front of a live. I'm sure you know from being a musician to do it in front of a live audience. Now I'm not a stand-up comedian, so we're just trying to get to the interview as quickly as we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you, you want to have your lines ready. <laughs> yeah, I get my lines ready, and then just bring out the person they want to see. I, I I try. I always try to do that very quickly. But look, I've walked out cold at Vicker Street, I think five or six times at this stage, and introduced people. And um, for somebody with me, with nay a nay a musical nor comedic bone in my body, I'd say that's some going. Like, so I'll take that. Yeah, that's not too bad. You're doing all right, yeah. you know, with the delve. You know, is the format going to kind of stay the same or will it change over the next, you know, while? I mean, it's always going to be conversations and they're always going to be, if I can get people for that long, they're going to be, you know, about a half an hour. Um, just in terms of like the type of people I'm trying to get. Uh, it's tricky juggling publicists and juggling all of that stuff. So I generally go, okay, look, 25 minutes, half an hour. That's the kind of format, the loose format. Sometimes they'll go longer and that's not going to change. If I get, if somebody offers me 15 minutes where, you know, Barack Obama, I'm not going to say no, you know? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, but no, in terms of the look at it, I'd love to go back to doing them in person. Um, and if an opportunity to come up to do them in person, I would, uh, depending on, like, if it was worthwhile, I'd, I'd absolutely do it. But it's kind of, my style of interviewing people is, like, will feed into the documentary that we're making. And um, it's loose, it's conversational, it's, again, I keep using that word authentic. So it bleeds into other parts as well. And, also, the technical stuff I know how to do now a bit better than I did. Um, so 
that makes my life a bit easier and a bit less expensive. <laughs> so, but also I'm freelancing now and the documentary is costing money. So I'll have to go back to get a full-time job to pay for it at a certain point. Yeah, you'll be outside McDonald's in Delorgan and for the morning shift. If you're, if you're listening to this, you might be getting a delivery off me with chicken curry or something like that. So tip well, tip well, you're, you're, you're paying off my, you're paying off my credit union now. For sure. They'll be like, I know that yeah. guy's fate. Where do I know you from? It's familiar. Yeah. You know, like you said there, sometimes when you would see those junkets, you know, interviewing people for 15 minutes, you know you're kind of talking about the movie, whereas I suppose the great thing about podcasts and, you know, uh, chat show, like even I suppose if you look at Tommy Tiernan or the Late Late Show, all of those guests get 15, 20 minutes maybe. And, you know, they can't be asked that many questions. It's more relevant to what they're promoting or what's happening. So it's nice with podcasts, you can do that hour, two hours. Even if you look at Joe Rogan, sometimes three hours. But it's nice because you can, like here, we're talking for well yeah. over an hour. And once you get into it, it's, there can be great conversations, can't they? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's, it, sometimes it takes a while for people to warm up and stuff too. And uh, it should feel like probably a lot of the time you're just chatting to a mate, you're having a beer, you're getting to know somebody. And look, that's why Tommy Tiernan chat works as well as it does, because he obviously doesn't know who's coming out until they come out. So he's genuinely trying to get to know them. Like that's, yeah, he's also yeah. Tommy Tiernan. Like, you know, he's a comedian, he's, he's got a comedic gift. Of course, of course. Uh, but he, also, he's not afraid of them. <laughs> exactly. But like, he's getting curious. He's a curious guy. I've had him yeah. on show. He's brilliant. But like, he's trying to get to know the people and it's, it's that's genuine. And look, it's on a, it's on a legacy media format, I suppose, in terms of like television and I've been RTE, but it's, it's real. And I think people, people love him anyway, but people love that. No, it, it's a great show on everything. And I mean, there's so many different types of show on television now and they're, trying to change the format to make it work to fit in with what's relevant and everything you know but you know when you only have a certain amount of time and in the hour you have to run commercials you can only fit so much in can't you oh absolutely i mean it's you've got nine minutes i look and look i've done live tv or, or presented live tv um years ago and it's very very stringent um and you end up the, the slicker ones end up kind of uh, kind of kicking on and moving on because they're slick and that's what that requires. You know, you've got nine minutes or whatever you have to do an interview. People are able to time themselves. People are really good at auto cue. Um, and that's a whole thing in itself. People like, when I did, I did uh, Young People's TV about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, and there was no auto cue. And I have a terrible memory. So I would just stumble over lines talking direct to camera. I still like, get flashbacks of that little B that you would see on RTE2 because that meant we were about to go live on air and just shit my pants. Um, and so I learned how to use autocue. I've learned how to use, I have an autocue set up here. I learned how to use autocue since because it makes your life so much easier. Once you don't want burgundy it, you don't you leave everything on the autocue. Yeah, no, but but that's it. Yeah, and you're, you know, I suppose with autocue like that, it's, you know, it it helps you at the right time, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like, I, I've, I've been to see a bunch of shows live as well. Like, so I've been to see, I've been to see David Letterman before he retired. Um been to see uh Seth Myers and John Stewart and John Stewart was incredible with the auto cue. He would go on and off it when he did the Daily Show and you could see, read the auto cue, stop, you go off, come back to it, and that's very very hard to do. Like he was also amazing. Like the team loved him. Like they coming up fist bumping him, and it was just amazing watching the behind the scenes of how they did the Daily Show. And I think he's like a, a John Stewart is an absolute god to me. I think he's a legend. No, he's great. And he's very satirical. He's brilliant. He's really good. Yeah, well, he's able to, I think, communicate messages in very, very simple, well, like often complex messages in a very, very simple, simple, easily digestible way that people respond to. And he's got balls as well. 
Yeah, he pushes it. He pushes it. That's the thing. He pushes that limit. He does, and there's not a huge amount of that in that commentary space, I think, at the moment. But like, I'm glad he's back. Um, I hope more people are watching his his, his Apple show um, because like, I think he's, re- he's a really, really important figure. Thanks very much for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. As I said, I just wanted to kind of delve into your life, excuse the pun. <laughs> I'm sure we're going to see some amazing guests on your show in the next few years. And, you know, I, I'm sure the show is going to get bigger and bigger because it's already really big. And But uh, I think I think you've had a great kind of guest list and as I said, I can only aspire to be a, a tenth of what you're doing, but it's a great inspiration. I mean, for, you know, any small podcast trying to look at shows like yours and to see how well they can be done and, you know, where you can take them as well. Yeah. And I mean, look, it goes back to whether you're, if you're interested in people or not, like a lot of the time, they don't need to be the most famous people in the world. They don't need to be the biggest no. names. You know, it's, they really don't. I mean, you see, like, uh, you had an FBI agent you had on? I had a, a U.S. Marshal. U.S. Marshal. Like yeah, he was the head of the U.S. Marshals, yeah. Like that's fascinating stuff. And like, people don't need to be famous. And I think that's one thing that Joe Rogan kind of really kind of pushed on, where he'd have like random Navy SEALs. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, for me, I saw him on a TV show and I saw him on a few TV shows. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to try and get him on. And, it, it, you know, it was one of those things that sometimes you ask someone and you're chasing them for weeks and weeks. And then sometimes you ask someone and they answer within a half an hour. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he was like that. He told, I think I asked him at half 10 at night and at 11 o'clock he said, yeah, no problem. And I was like, Jesus, that was easy. <laughs> if, if only they were all like that. But yeah, like, look. I mean, that, that that's the thing. And I find the funny thing is sometimes you're chasing someone and, you know, they're kind of, they're avoiding you. And then you say to them, I said to someone recently, are, are you ghosting me? And then they must have been thinking about it. Shit, maybe I am. And then they said, oh, no, no, I'm just really busy. And I, I always say to them then when they come back and they say, oh, I'm sorry, I never answered the message and all this. And I said, don't worry about it. It's all part of the game because, you know, I'm, go- I'm going to forgive all of that because you're here now. So don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a really good podcast. I don't know if you heard it. It's called Smartless now. I'm not necessarily a fan of movie stars and really famous people doing podcasts because they take away the guests from the rest of us. But uh, Jason Bateman is Will Arnett and Sean Hayes. Oh, yes, yes. I've seen, I, I haven't listened to it, but I've seen it publicized. And they had Ryan Reynolds on it. And Bateman, Jason Bateman was like, Ryan, you never responded to my text asking me to do the show. And I was like, fuck, it happens to Jason Bateman. So <laughs> That's what I mean. Everybody's ghosting everybody because if it's not the right time or if, they're, if they have another agenda, there's lots of different reasons. So I think this kind of industry, the entertainment, you know, music, everything, it's very shallow in some respects because people sometimes are, you know, can it benefit them? Can it, is it a vehicle for them to move along? So sometimes you have to just keep knocking on the door. Yeah. And look, like I always try and say yes to stuff as well, because I know what it's like uh, chasing people. I'm trying to get people to do the show. So there's certainly a level of empathy there as well with the, you know, with, and it takes a lot to reach out to people too. I've had to scatter shots and emails over time and kind of hope for the best. And if people don't come back to you, it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 you, can get, you can get a bit downtrodden. So it's always nice when people respond. You can, and you can have weeks there where nobody answers, and then all of a sudden they all come back together. Yeah, it's like Dublin bus. It's like Dublin bus. <laughs> Listen, Mike, it's been a pleasure chatting to you. And as I said, it's nice to get an insight into your world and, you know, and the previous worlds you've worked in. And I'm sure for people listening, you know, they, it, they'll find it quite intriguing that how those things were done and how that world works as well. So, as I said, best of luck with everything in the future and we look forward to seeing what else you bring out. Legend, Simon. Thanks, man. Thank you very much. Mike Sheridan, everybody. 
Okay, thank you very much, Mike Sheridan. That was wonderful to talk to you and such a varied career interviewing all of these people. A very driven and ambitious guy to boot, you know, these ultra marathons and competing in the martial arts MMA fight after only three months training. That's amazing and had such a great career and I know it's going to continue to get even bigger. And we want to congratulate you on The Delve. It's a great podcast and show and for having interviewed some amazing guests. And we can only strive to be a little bit as good as you are, Mike. So well done. And it was a pleasure having you on the show. Okay, everybody, it's been a pleasure having you here. We look forward to having you back for some more great guests in this season three. And as always, we would like to say to everybody, please feel free to share, subscribe, and tell your friends all about the show. Okay, everybody, I am Simon Kay. This has been the Collective Whisper podcast. Until the next time, take care of yourself, your friends, your family, your loved ones. Bye-bye.